Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Tully for History 304, History of uh, Rap Music, Rap in American Society. Uh, today we're going to try talking about Two Live Crew and Pop Rap, so I'll give you a second to go into Moodle and get the PowerPoint and we'll get started. Now, if you haven't noticed, I usually try to do these things fairly clean. Um, I don't like to curse, I don't like to talk about really naughty things. Uh, this is one of those times where I'm going to try really hard not to talk about the naughty stuff, but there's some things you might be able to find fairly easily that are much more scandalous than what I normally talk about. Um, I will not directly link to those. I'm trying hard to not show pictures of them, uh, but for some of this, you might want to look it up just to have a general idea. However, if you're not comfortable doing that, that's perfectly okay. I'm not going like, to test you on any, anything like that, but I, I just don't feel really comfortable like telling you to look at some of this stuff mm -hmm. because it is a little uh, naughty, shall we say. So I'm going to take you a second kind of remind you of the status quo uh, prior to Two Life Crew. Two Life Crew was mainly active in the late 80s. By the time we get into the 90s, even, they're kind of passe, but they really have a moment in the later 80s. I'd say around 88, 89. Uh, that's when they're super hot, super big deal. That's when they're super scandalous. Uh, but with the success of Def Jam, who we talked about last week, and groups like Run DMC, uh, rap music is becoming a lot more popular throughout the country. Uh, not only, you know, this is due in large part to, like, you know, the efforts of Russell Simmons to get it promoted mainstream, uh, demonstrated as this is like teenage rebellion music, kind of going for the teen area, wide audiences. We talked about that last week. And so it's only natural other regions would start having more rappers come about. Uh, you know, rap started out as a New York thing, but now you're having rap in more places since the music is being played in more places as well. You know, it's, it's, it's going across the country. So it's only natural that um, other areas are going to be coming out with rap music. Uh, today we're going to be talking a lot about the Bay Area and particularly Miami. Uh, we'll talk about the Bay Area more next week when we get into, like, gangster rap and coastal stuff. Uh, however, this is a lot about Miami. A lot about Miami which is a southern city. Uh, still do not seen as too much of a big rap town, but there, there are, yeah, I'll take that back. DJ Khaled, some of the other ones. Is DJ Khaled even a rapper? Or is he just a guy who, like, makes rap music and shouts we the best on it? Uh, still, Miami has its own vibe, and a lot of that early vibe at least comes from Two Live Crew. And also, with the music becoming a lot more popular and a lot wider, um, and a lot more wider knowledge, it's only natural that you're going to have a lot more, like, hand-wringing and clutch pearls about the music, a lot more worry about what about the children, this sort of thing. Uh, when rap music was still fairly small, whenever it wasn't as popular, whenever it wasn't being marketed as directly towards children, which we're going to get into, uh, there, there wasn't that much controversy about it. But now, as it's becoming more popular and more apparent, um, much more interest from parents and other groups are like, is this decent music? So by the time, like I said, as we get into the late 80s, early 90s, it's a genre that's growing in popularity and starting to get some sustained success. A lot of it has to do with the state of the country in this time period. Uh, the country's actually look, feeling pretty happy. This is a fairly optimistic time within the United States as a whole. Uh, mainstream society, just American society, because uh, the Cold War is starting to run down. The Cold War is starting to kind of wind down. It's becoming obvious that the U.S. has won. Uh, there is a talk, if you've had my uh, history since 1945 class, there's this idea called the end of history. It's like with the United States winning the Cold War, we're no longer going to have any of those like big geopolitical conflicts. Wars are over. You know, Freedom, quote-unquote, had won for human society and for the rest of the time. Uh, we're not going to ha have to worry about big issues. We can worry about like little issues. Uh, we can worry about things like, you know, things about our children or like economics. We're not worried about human survival necessarily anymore. Uh, I should also mention with children, you do have a new generation really. Uh, they're small children. They're barely starting to come to age in this time period, but they are a new generation. Uh, this is the millennials. Uh, the millennials are kind of a weird generation in this time period. Uh, most of their parents are boomers. Uh, whereas most rappers and early hip-hoppers, and most actually, generally, the people in the hip-hop generation, quote-unquote, are people who are uh, Gen Xers, uh, who also have baby boomer parents. Um, Gen Xers are the kids that baby boomers had when baby boomers were in their, like, 20s. Uh, millennials were the kids that baby boomers had when they were in their 30s and um, sometimes early 40s. 
Uh, for instance, I am a millennial. I'm a millennial. I was born in 1984, so right in this time period. However, both my siblings, they were born about 10 years earlier. They're definitely Generation X. So you definitely have this new generation. Uh, the hip-hop generation is getting a little older. Uh, generations in hip-hop in this time period really don't last all that long. Um, rappers in this time generally get their start in their early 20s, late teens, early 20s. Uh, that's still a thing. Most rappers kind of get their start in their early 20s and teens. Uh, what is interesting is that in this time period, there's like a lot of change within the generations. Like every five years or so, you have a brand new slate of rappers coming in. And so most of the rappers you hear about in this time period, they're about a good five to ten years younger than most of your early rappers. Uh, your Africa Bombadas, your uh, Grandmaster Flashes. Uh, these guys are about five to ten years younger than them. So a, a younger generation, they might have been in middle school or so whenever hip-hop came out. Now, rap is spreading through the traditional radio music business. That is to be expected. That is fairly normal. That rap is going to spread in that fashion. However, uh, there are other ways it does spread about. Other ways that are spread about. Because remember, the radio music industry is still kind of warming up to rap music. Uh, although Russell Simmons has shown that, hey, you know, Def Jam can have pretty good sustained success. Uh, remember, he is promoting a lot of, like, quote-unquote uh, rock acts. You know, groups like the Beastie Boys and stuff are one of the, some of their biggest sellers who are not... I mean, I'm not saying the Beastie Boys don't have street credibility. They have tons of street credibility. They're, they're originators, but they don't fit in your, your prototypical rap uh, element. In fact, there's a reason why a lot of early rappers or a lot of, rap, a lot of hip-hop people in general don't care for Russell Simmons and some of the early Def Jam stuff. Uh, for instance, in Hip Hop Family Tree, you can see that the artist and writer cannot stand Russell Simmons. They just do not like him. And in a weird way that a lot of the country is being introduced to rap music is actually through the military, which is interesting when you think about it. Uh, a lot of these early rappers are actually former military guys. Uh, the, you know, uh, a lot of it is, you know, guys sign up for the military. They might be from New York. They might be from, you know, the, the, the boroughs or the, you know, the tri-state area. Uh, they go over across the country to their different army bases. Maybe they go across the world to army bases and, or military bases and they play their music they, they bring their rap with them they introduce it to other people it's a way that it can be done outside of uh, the radio business outside of the traditional music business uh, a lot of rap guys first get introduced to the genre in the military a lot of these early rappers have been in the military uh, it seems a viable option for young people who really don't or can't go to college either they don't want to go to college or they don't really have an opportunity to go to college and there are limited employment opportunities. Remember we talked about that when we talked about what's going on in the South Bronx, less manufacturing, less things like that are going on in this time period. Uh, the military seems like a viable option. A lot of different people are getting involved in the military, particularly young African-American men, because they feel there is less opportunity out there. And oftentimes in the military, they hear rap music for the first time. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of early rappers get into this. Uh, and also, I should mention, a lot of rappers do go to college, at least some form of college, at least the early rappers. Uh, for instance, Ice Cube, who we'll talk about next week when we get into gangster rap, he actually gets a degree in um, drafting, like architecture. And actually, he was like, yeah, I plan to be an architect if this whole rap thing doesn't work out, which is not something you hear all the time with rap guys. So <laughs> anyway, that's that. Uh, in fact, one of these early, you know... Military people is the Two Live Crew. Uh, it's, it was started by military guys who are in Riverside, California, who were in the Air Force. Uh, Riverside, California is in the Inland Empire. That's uh, outside of Los Angeles. It's, it's in the Los Angeles metro area. Uh, Los Angeles, which we're going to talk about a lot more next week, is a very, very, very large area. Like, you have the beach, but you also have stuff like inland, which is a good hour or so drive from the beach. It's all in the same kind of general area. Um, the, the members of Two Life Crew, the original three members of Two Life Crew are all in the Air Force. Uh, the original members, if you go over one slide, you will see them uh, from left to right. Let's see. On the left, you got uh, you got Kid Fresh Ice. His name is Kid Chris Wong Young. Uh, in the middle, you got DJ Mr. Mix. That's David Hobbs. And finally, on the right is the amazing V, who is Yuri Viat. Um... Like I said, they're all military guys. Uh, Kid Fresh Ice is actually originally from, well, he was born in Trinidad and Tobago. 
Uh, he, he grows up in Brooklyn, however, uh, not seeing a lot of you know job opportunities. He decides to join the Air Force in the Air, Air Force to meet these other guys. Uh, Kid Fresh Ice is also interesting, if you can tell. Uh, he is of Asian ancestry. He is mixed Asian-Afro ancestry. Um, I believe both of his grandmothers were black, but like his, I believe his mom's family was like from Hong Kong, and another family. It's, it's. I'm pretty sure it's Hong Kong. It's like Hong Kong and like Afro, uh, not African American, but like African ancestry. Uh, like I said, he was born in Trinidad, Tobago. Then his parents moved over to uh, Brooklyn. Uh, he is actually of Asian ancestry, like I said, and he's one of the first, if not the first. Uh, rappers of Asian ancestry during this time period. In fact, period. Uh, there aren't too, too many Asian rappers out there, and it's interesting that one of these early groups does have an Asian rapper. It's actually not really even that talked too much about. Um, you know, they don't really talk about his ancestry that much, even in the lyrics. Like, you know, his name is Chris Wong Yong, like, so that's a fairly Asian, you know, fairly Chinese name. Uh, how, well, Hong Kong, I should say. Uh, yet, it's not really remarked upon in the songs. Now, probably the most important member of the group is Mr. Mix, David Hobbs. Uh, he creates a new style of bass line, which really becomes associated with not only the group, but uh, the city of Miami as a whole. Like, the, the Miami bass, uh, very much done by this one guy. He's the main one in charge of making the music of it. Um, I, 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 you can't not talk about Two Live Crew without talking about Miami. That is really their... They're synonymous with the city. Uh, however, they do not start in Miami. They start in Riverside, California. Now, the trio at this time period, they release, they release a single in 1984. Uh, it's an A-side, it's a B-side. The A-side is Revelation. The uh, B-side is Too Live. Uh, it's released on their own label. And it goes pretty much absolutely nowhere in California. It goes absolutely nowhere in California. Um, there's not a huge draw to it like it, 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 you know they're, they're not they're even they're trying to be kind of under the radar because they don't want their military superiors to know that they're you know making music and doing things on the weekends like doing shows uh, it doesn't go anywhere in California however it does kind of make it on the radio circuit and it actually gets down to Miami somehow um, the music is on Miami is in Miami uh, it, it makes its way down there through the various radio ways. It, it does come out on a very small label, yet you know there are various radio stations who are listening to this sort of thing. And the guy who hears it is a man by the name of Luther Campbell. If you go over one slide, you will see Luther Campbell right there. Now, Luther Campbell is a very young man in this time period. Uh, he is working for a radio station. He was interested in music. Uh, theoretically, doesn't really know that much about how to do music. He's a very low-level radio worker in the Miami area. Uh, he hears the song, particularly Revelation. He's like, hey, this is kind of good. Uh, maybe I will play it in Miami. I'll play it on my radio station. Um, it, it starts getting popular in Miami, maybe because he's on the radio station and he likes it, so he plays it quite a bit on some of the rap stations you have there. Uh, you are starting to have some early rap radio stations in this very area. Still very much in the urban music genre. And it, it's successful enough that he, he tells the group, he reaches out to the group, it's like, hey, um, that song you put out... Um, it's kind of popular down here. Why don't you come down for a concert? You know, come down for a concert. It'll be fun. Uh, by this time, they've gotten their discharges from the military. So they're like, you know what? Why not? We'll, we'll do this. We'll go down to Miami. We play. Um, they go to Miami. Campbell loves them. He says, hey, um, please let me become your manager. Uh, Campbell's not really a rapper this time period. He doesn't know anything about making a beat. So he's not a DJ. But he's definitely not a rapper. And so he's like, hey, please let me manage you. I, I think there's something to be had here. Please let me manage your group. And the group agrees. Uh, one of the first things he does is he tells them, hey, y'all need to move to Miami. Um, we're having more success in Miami. I, I know more people in Miami. You can do a lot more in Miami than you can possibly do over in California. So come on down. They relocate to Miami. Uh, likewise, he brings in another member, uh, Brother Marquis. Brother Marquis, I, I don't know his real name off the top of my head. That's the stage name is Brother Marquis. Uh, he's from Miami. He's from Miami, so he brings in a Miami guy. Uh, ultimately, Luther Campbell decides, you know what, I'm going to join the group myself. You know, I'm managing it. I want to be, be everything. I'm going to become the main guy here. Let me do this. And so he joins the group himself. 
Uh, this upsets the Amazing V. Uh, the Amazing V, who is one of the original members of the group, decides, you know what, I- I'm going to leave. I'm not feeling this. This is this is not what I'm feeling. So he gets out of the group. He gets out of the group. Amazing V leaves. So pretty much the four set that you have is pretty much um, pretty much Brother Marquis and um, Kid Fresh Ice are the two who actually rap. Uh, you know, Miss, uh, DJ Mr. Mix is the big time DJ, and Luther Campbell's a little bit of a hype man. Uh, he's more than just a hype man. That's that's almost derogatory to call him just a hype man. But he's he he starts out really not rapping. He's just more the fact that he's you know he's got connections. Uh, in time, however, Campbell's going to become the most well-known member of the group, and actually he's going to overshadow all of them. Uh, it gets to the point where Luther Campbell, or Uncle Luke, as he's better known, um, is the group. Like, he's the guy who dominates the group. Even though he doesn't start the group, uh, he's like, hey, let me just manage you. He comes to dominate the group. Now, the first record they release uh, in 1986, their first full album is called Two Life Crew Is What We Are. You can see there they are. Notice they've clearly embrace their new Miami uh, mentality, their new Miami lifestyle, wearing all the University of Miami stuff. Um, it's, it's a decent success around the country, but it's especially popular in South Florida. It is super popular in South Florida. Uh, it's also released on Campbell's own record label. Uh, that's not too unusual in this time period to do it on your own record label. Uh, a lot of rappers do have their own uh, pet label. You just pair up with a bigger record label for distribution. Remember, Two Live Crew's first single was issued on their own record label. Uh, Luther Campbell has his own record label that he calls Skywalker Records. He says his name is Luke Skywalker. That's his stage name. Uh, hang on, my dog is... There we go. Sorry, my dog was snuggling in. Uh, his stage name is Luke Skywalker after the guy from Star Wars um, why he picks the name Luke Skywalker I'm not going to get into that uh, I've heard um, all sorts of creative things about lightsabers shall we say uh, lightsabers shall we say uh, like I said it's, it's a fairly you know it's a middling success around the country it, it's not a it's not a flop by any means uh, but you know it's the debut album by a group nobody's really heard of before pretty much it's only Luther Campbell it's really popular in South Florida um, it's also controversial because it is way more sexual than their earlier stuff. Uh, in fact, the group is mainly known for its sexual lyrics, and that's really their main hallmark. Uh, when you talk about Two Live Crew, the thing that you really hear about, uh, especially in this time period, is just basically how uh, naughty the lyrics are. Just really, really upfront. I mean, really, you can look up the song titles and the lyrics. I'm not going to go into that because, eh, you know, not comfortable doing that. Uh, but if you look up the song titles, if you look up the lyrics, you're going to see pretty much they're all about sex. Just pretty much only about sex and also being very derogatory towards women. Uh, calling women all sorts of, you know, names that are not very nice to call women and very derogatory about sex and women's appearance and uh, performing sexual acts and just, you know, naughty things. Very, very, very sexual. Now, the awesome, al- the album also has um, one of the first run-ins with the law for the group. Uh, that's going to become a hallmark of the group. Uh, basically, when a record store clerk is charged with, quote, <clears throat> contributing to the delinquency of a minor for selling the record to a 14-year-old. Uh, a 14-year-old girl. Basically, there was somebody working at a record store uh, sold the record to a 14-year-old girl, which is theoretically not illegal, but not really looked, um, it's not looked favorably upon to let, you know, young people listen to music like this. Uh, the record clerk was ultimately, the record store clerk was ultimately acquitted of the crime. Uh, it did bode for the future. Uh, their second album was in 1988. It was called Move Something, which was a decent success as well. It also had controversy. Uh, although Mr. Mix was creating a new rap sound, uh, Miami rap is known for very being very high tempo, uh, very energetic. I provided some samples actually on uh, Moodle of stuff like this. Uh, for instance, if you look at "Whoop There It Is," which is a little bit later, um, it's a much cleaner song. It's it's more of pop rap, honestly. Uh, it's very demonstrative of the Miami 
uh, Beat Sound. It's very demonstrative of the Miami Beat. Uh, the group who does it, tag team, I believe they're actually from Jacksonville, Florida. But it's still very much in the same milieu. Uh, same thing with Groove On. Uh, Groove One is done by DJ Magic Mike. He is from Orlando. But it's also very, very well known for the um, Miami sound, the kind of South Florida rap sound. Uh, fun little things about Whoop There It Is. At, at second 47 in this video, there's a guy who looks like Obama. It's not Obama. It kind of looks like a young Obama, which is kind of funny. There was a whole urban legend. Uh, whenever Obama was president, like maybe he was in the tag team video. Uh, Groove One is actually from the mid-90s, I think like 96, 97. Still very much in the Miami sound. Um, it's got probably the, the, the greatest dad-style dancing. There's this, there's this one white dude. He's got to be in his 40s, uh, dancing in a teal shirt about, what's he, about minute 2.30 in the video. Was they say, like, DJ Magic Mike and everybody else dancing around a car? There's this one dude in, like, a teal turquoise shirt. He is going at it. Like, it is hilarious. I, I, would, I would love for you to watch that. It's really funny. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, he is making this completely new sound. You know, DJ Mr. Mix is making this completely new sound, very energetic. Uh, he does sample a lot, though. He samples a lot. Uh, sampling is something which is not uncommon in rap music. In fact, that's part of one of the earliest hallmarks is, you know, taking the best five seconds of a song. Uh, generally, they do obscure records. Uh, remember, the earliest rap was like really obscure stuff, stuff that people didn't necessarily know. However, to help get an audience, um, and maybe this is just what Mr. Mix likes to do, he's starting to pull from fairly well-known music. Fairly well-known music, which is theoretically okay, but kind of a gray area for like recording purposes. Um... For instance, this album, the album Move Something, had the song Do Wah Diddy on it. Uh, you might know the, the 60s version of Do Wah Diddy. There she was, just a-walking down the street, singing Do Wah Diddy, Diddy, Dum Diddy, Do... Okay, you don't know it. Your parents or grandparents definitely know that song. It's, it's an older song from the 60s. It's squeaky clean. Uh, the 2 Live Crew version of it is not squeaky clean. It talks about ladies and their sexual parts and if they're stinky or not and it's it's a very yeah it, it's a very perverse song this does upset a lot of baby boomers a lot of pearl clutching uh, particularly the white baby boomers they get very upset about this since it makes what was a very clean song uh, very dirty very talking about sex I'm not saying that baby boomer songs didn't talk about sex or that early rock and roll didn't talk about sex of course it did sex is nothing new but it's usually not as uh, profane, shall we say, or overt. Uh, the group often gets the moniker pornography rap, uh, basically that it's nothing but just pornography. It's just just sex for sex sake. Now that really gets tested with their next album, uh, an album that I'm not even going to show you the cover to. You can Google it. It's not that... It, it's dirty enough. It, 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 it's dirty enough that I would not feel comfortable putting it on a PowerPoint, but you can Google it if you really feel like it. Just know it has uh, behinds on it. it. It's got booties on it. Uh, it's entitled As Nasty As They Want to Be. It comes out in 1989. It's their biggest album and also their most controversial album for several reasons. Uh, for instance, this is the first time that this was not released on Luke Skywalker Records. You can see uh, the old logo for Luke Skywalker Records. Um, if you notice, Luke Skywalker is spelled very closely to Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. Uh, this upset George Lucas. Uh, George Lucas was very upset about this because he's like, hey, um, you know, my Luke Skywalker is a nice, clean young Jedi who doesn't talk about butts or sex. That's not my shtick. And uh, Campbell was arguing, no, I can use it. It's fair use. Um, we're going to get into fair use in a second. But theoretically, um, you know, if you use somebody else's idea, you should pay them royalties or copyright. However, some things are considered fair use, that if you're using it for certain purposes, you can use it. Um, Campbell said, no, this is fair use. Uh, George Lucas says it wasn't. Ultimately, it does go to court. Uh, Campbell loses this one. And so it's now released on Luke Records. Just Luke. Just Luke. Named after Luth Luther Campbell. Uh, he, he can't use the term Luke Skywalker anymore. He can no longer use the moniker Luke Skywalker. 
So he just gets known as Luke or Uncle Luke from this point forward. Uh, the other reason why this was controversial was uh, Pretty Woman. This is another sampling issue slash lawsuit. Uh, Pretty Woman is a Roy Orbison song. Uh, Roy Orbison, another 60s musician. Uh, pretty woman walking down the street. Pretty woman kind of like to meet. It's an old song your parents or grandparents might know. Uh, this, the two live crew version, as you see a picture of, is much dirtier. Like, much, much dirtier. Like, significantly dirtier. And really talks about how ugly she is and how she has long hair, looking like Cousin It from the Adams Family. And she smells bad and all sorts of junk like that. Uh, the, the estate of Roy Orbison, uh, Roy Orbison had died by this time period, but his estate sued the group saying that basically this is inappropriate. Uh, this ultimately does go to the Supreme Court in 1994, stating that no, uh, this was protected. And this works. Okay. They originally wanted to do, to do the song. They wanted to do the song. And so the record label, Luther Campbell and all these guys, they asked Roy Orbison's estate for use of the song. Uh, this is not uncommon. This is not uncommon. Theoretically, they were not directly sampling it. They were just using it kind of as homage or parody. Uh, parody is something which is protected under fair use. Um, the, the estate refused, but the two live crew, they're like, you know what, we want to record this song anyway. We'll claim it's under parody. Um, parody, like I said, is a weirdly protected form of speech. As long as you can prove that your version is not to be taken seriously or in the stead of the original product, you can pretty much have pretty free reign of doing a lot of different things with stuff, uh, insofar as you don't take the trademarks. So, for instance, uh, you can make a parody of Star Wars. You can do a parody of Star Wars with laser swords and, you know, seven-foot-tall dog creatures and a, a dude with a respirator that, you know, does that sort of thing. However, you can't use the actual names. So if you, like, want to make a Star Wars parody, uh, you can't use a name like Luke Skywalker or Han Solo or Darth Vader or Lightsaber or, or Princess Leia. And, and, and no, just adding an extra Y does not count Luther Campbell. Just saying you're Luke Skywalker, that doesn't make it, that doesn't change. So, basically, you can parody something. Uh, think of something like Weird Al. Weird Al Yankovic. Now, Weird Al Yankovic always gets uh, permission from, his art, from the artist he parodies, but he doesn't really have to. If you parody something um, you, that is protected speech. Uh, so, for instance, if you want to make fun of like an elected official or something, you know, parody them, you can do it. You can make fun of them pretty much all you want. Uh, that's not libel or, or slander. It, it's slander if it's spoken. It's libel if it's written. So, like I said, this ultimately goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, you know what? Um, you know, the, the song that the Two Live Crew is doing, although it has elements of the original song, it has some elements of the original song, it's different enough. They're not using the same lyrics. Um, they're, you know, it, it's clearly a parody. They're making fun of it. They're not saying this is the original Pretty Woman song. It's something completely different. Um, that, that kind of goes away in 94. Uh, that pales in comparison, though, to the big one, go over one slide, Obscenity. Okay, uh, shortly after the record's release, uh, as, of as bad as they want to be, um, the state of Florida said this record is obscene. Like, it is so dirty, it has no redeeming value, it is obscene. It has no purpose whatsoever other than being obscene. You know, there's no redeeming value. This is just something filthy. It's dirty. Uh, this happened because there was a lawyer in um, Florida. Do I have a picture of him? I have him in a second. I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. Basically, a lawyer in Florida kind of pressured the governor of Florida to do this. And then later on, this was enforced by a federal judge. A federal judge in Florida ruled that this record was so dirty, it's so obscene, it's the only record actually that ever got labeled so obscene, that even possessing it was deemed illegal. To have this record was so dirty, so obscene, it was against the public right, you know, it was against the public good, it had no redeeming value, that to even own this record was viewed as obscene, it was viewed as a crime. 
So to even own this was a crime in certain parts of Florida. Not not all Florida, but basically in this federal judge's districts. Uh, the group was arrested when they performed parts of the album in public. Uh, you can see the first thing I had, that first picture, uh, was as nasty as they want to be. That is uh, Luther Campbell being arrested. Uh, if you see underneath that newspaper headline, two rap singers arrested, charged after an obscene show in uh, Boward. Uh, you can see uh, pictures of the show. It was done at a strip club. Uh, they performed at a strip club. Uh, yeah, two live crew, very, very bullish on strippers. Uh, two live crew, very big fan of strippers. They like strippers. Uh, some said that this was a quote-unquote sex club. It was not a sex club. It was a strip club. Basically, strippers, people taking off their clothes. Uh, they were arrested for performing parts of the songs. Uh, they claim that they were only performing the, the clean versions, uh, not the dirty versions, but if you look at some of the lyrics, you're like, there's no way you can perform this clean. Uh, they even tried to put out a, a clean version of the CD of the record called uh, Not As Nasty As They Want To Be, but it's called As Clean As They Want To Be, but it even had cursing on it. Like it's, There's some things you just can't clean up, and, and this is one of them. But also, they did have copies of the dirty album with them for sale. So that's what they got arrested on. They got arrested for performing the dirty stuff, even though they claimed no, it's just a clean version. But they also had copies of the dirty version on sale. That was illegal. Now, this caught the attention of Tipper Gore. If you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of Tipper Gore. Uh, that name may or may not be familiar to you. Um, it's become a lot more familiar. Uh, Tipper Gore heads up what's called the Parents Music Resource Center. Parents, Resource, uh, Parents Music Resource Center. P-M-R-C. Um, it's a Washington-era group. Uh, pretty much it was the wives of, like, four pretty big-time uh, politicians come together, kind of acting somewhat like a consumer advocacy group, uh, letting parents know the content of popular music. Uh, basically, she claims, hey, we need to think of the children. You know, we're, we're still talking about these younger millennials. Uh, millennials in this time period, uh, most millennials were born, I think, between 78 and, like, late 80s, so they're small children in this time period. However, you do have, uh, you know, some Gen Xers, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, sure, saying basically we want to let parents know what's on some of these records. Uh, in 1985, they released something called the Filthy 15. Uh, the Filthy 15, you see here, she said those were the, the, fi the 15 worst songs. Uh, they're, they're the worst songs, you know, out there, has the, what the rating is. Most of them is X, which is like sexually explicit. Um, you know, O is for occult. I think there's like one or two occult songs. Uh, DRA is drugs and alcohol. And then V is violent. And if you notice, the thing that you're going to see the most is sexual. Um, I don't know if you know some of these songs. Uh, they're 80s songs, very 80s. But with the exception of Prince, these are all white songs. These are all like um, rock and roll songs, hard rock songs, heavy metal songs. Well, then you got Sydney Lauper. She's popping. Madonna's definitely pop. We're not going to take it. It's violent. Eh, what do you know? Whatever. Um, that was the one she's called the most, the worst songs. If you notice, there are no rap songs on there. There are no rap songs on there absolutely whatsoever. Uh, probably because she wasn't too aware of it yet. Uh, rap was still fairly youngish in 1985. You know, Def Jam is still kind of coming along. Um... What ultimately comes into fruition for the Parents Music Advi uh, Resource Council Center, sorry, uh, they eventually come up basically to let parents know this is bad music, is the parental advisory sticker. If you see that right there, I'm not sure if they have that nowadays. I remember as a kid, that was always a big thing, was like, you have the dirty version of a record or the clean version of the record, uh, or CD or album, whatever you want to call it. Um, some retailers refuse to carry it. Uh, Walmart, most notably, would refuse to carry a song, uh, an album that had the printer advisory sticker on it. However, sometimes, uh, you know, this made this forbidden fruit. Uh, they claim, you know what, this made uh, songs, which are albums which would otherwise not be as popular, way more enticing, way more forbidden fruit for a child, young person. Uh, you know, they are talking about teenagers, but mainly they're talking about younger children, so this is where we get into more of the millennials. Now, Gore starts leading a crusade against the group, uh, against the Two Live crew. Uh, she starts publishing their lyrics, basically, as evidence of how dirty it is, of how filthy the situation is, saying, hey, 
you, you thought the Filthy 15 are bad. Here's one album which is nothing but filthy. It has no uh, redeeming values. Likewise, this is echoed with Jack Thompson. There's the lawyer guy I talked about earlier. He is a lawyer in Florida um, who basically is like challenging all this obscenity stuff. Uh, he later becomes more famous as an uh, advocate against violent video games, basically arguing that certain video games are too violent. However, his first bit of notoriety is against Two Live Crew. Uh, now, the group does have its own advocates, has its own defenders, and a lot of free speech advocates do take up the cause. Uh, a lot of things like the ACLU, different free speech organizations, uh, do take up their cause, say, hey, this should be protected under the First Amendment. Uh, basically, this is something worthwhile. Uh, most notably during their trial, they do get uh, Henry Louis Gates. Henry Louis Gates, who is a um, fairly like successful black thinker, black historian, black guy, uh, black guy, black thought guy. Uh, have you ever watched the TV show uh, Finding Your Roots on PBS? Which, okay, you probably don't watch the show. It's a great show. Watch it. It's a fun show. Uh, he's a scholar of African-American thought. Basically, he argues that uh, this is not obscenity, this music was not obscenity, but rather part of black culture and vernacular. He says this is something that's been going on you know, since time immemorial for African Americans, kind of argues for like slave narratives, the dozens, things like that. Uh, for his part, Luther Campbell says that he is not a sexual deviant. He's like, you know, I might rap about sex, or my guys might rap about sex. But that doesn't mean like we're just obsessed with sex, we're not perverts. He says, you know, I'm a, I'm a hardworking businessman who's just selling a product. You know, if my audience didn't like sex, if they didn't like the music, I, I would make something else. I'd make, a, you know, different songs about different things. Um, it is a successful case. It is a successful case. You can see the picture right there of uh, Luther Campbell, um, you know, kind of celebrating after the verdict. Uh, the group's profile was raised significantly by the su successful case. Uh, it also demonstrated how rap music was now targeted by parents' rights groups. Um, you know, the Filthy 15 didn't include any rap songs, but now rap would be way more included. Uh, way more stuff was going to be said against rap music. Pretty much, although they won the battle, uh, the war of saying like that rap music is appropriate or clean or whatever, uh, that is now much more problematic, and rap's going to be under the microscope. Uh, for the group's next album, if you see, go over one more, you'll see their next album, uh, Band in the USA, which is actually supposed to be Luther Campbell's first solo record. Uh, however, later they said, hey, it's with the Two Live Crew because the Two Live Crew had such uh, panache. Uh, it is very much a parody or homage or direct ripoff of Bo uh, Born in the USA, the you know, Springsteen thing. Uh, primarily a Campbell solo record. Uh, notice it does have the parental advisory sticker. This is the first time that a Two Live Crew album gets the parental advisory sticker. Um, after this point, their albums become less and less successful. Uh, most of the rap music had passed them by the time we get into the early 90s, uh, and the Clinton presidency in particular. Uh, it's also during the, the uh, Clinton presidency where Tipper Gore would become second lady of the United States. Uh, that's right, Tipper Gore's husband is Al Gore, who became the vice president. And there, there were still plenty of controversies to handle. Uh, and although this level of pornography rap waned in popularity, uh, but never went away, uh, sexually explicit stuff is still out there in rap music. Um, like that Cardi B song that just came out, Cardi B Megan the Stallion song, that's, that's pretty, uh, you know, it's talking about sex quite a bit in that one. Uh, rap would become a little bit more controversial as it became more popular in certain genres. In certain genres, rap would become more controversial outside of the rap that was deemed appropriate. Uh, outside of the rap that was deemed okay. What kind of rap was deemed okay? Well, I'll tell you, pop rap. Uh, pop rap really comes in the early 90s. Rap music starts to get way more billboard success. Like mainstream billboard success. Which basically means a lot more white people are listening to it. Uh, large part thanks to two artists. Two artists really demonstrate for the Billboard charts how rap music is not just going to become like popular in the African American community, but popular mainstream, and it's going to become a genre that's going to become pretty big for the time being. Uh, these two artists are MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. Two guys which have no street credibility nowadays. Uh, even the time period, they were not street credibility for the rap world. However, they sold. 
Uh, with MC Hammer, MC Hammer, his birth name is Stanley Burrell. Uh, he is from the Bay Area. He is from San Francisco, uh, Oakland area. Uh, gets his nickname actually when he was a young kid. He was a bat boy for the Oakland A's. Uh, he was a bat boy from the Oakland A's. Uh, he comes from a very like middle class family in Oakland, very working class family. Not from the ghetto by any stretch. Not a not a bad guy. Not a drug dealer. Oh, uh, he gets his nickname of, of Hammer uh, because he supposedly as a little kid looks like Hank Aaron, uh, Hammer and Hank Aaron, the baseball player. So he's uh, primarily known as a dancer. He gets more involved with dancing than rap music. Uh, gets involved in like R and B and dancing quite a bit, break dancing a little bit. Uh, he is a super religious guy. Uh, still to this day, MC Hammer is like very religious, uh, significantly religious. Uh, his raps are not dirty in the slightest. Like he does not get the parental advisory sticker on his um, on any of his albums. Uh, he starts doing some albums in the early, sorry, the late '80s. Uh, he really gets mainstream success though with um, you, the, ha- the the album uh, Hammer. Please don't hurt them. Uh, with the single, as you see right there, You Can't Touch This. Uh, you Can't Touch This was an incredibly popular single. It does not go number one on the Billboard. Uh, however, the album, uh, Hammer, Please Don't Hurt Them, does indeed go number one on the Billboard chart. Now, this song does sample another song. If, you, if you've never listened to it before, I'm, I'm sure you have, though, uh, You Can't Touch This samples Rick James's Super Freak. Uh, Soup Freak is a very popular and obvious sample. This is not Chick's Good Times. This is a very obvious sample. Just the, the bass line from Mekanchus. Do, 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 do. It's clearly Super Freak. Uh, it's very popular. Rick James is okay with it. I think he does pay Rick James some money. Uh, this is not like a, you know, a parody thing, because it's not a parody. It is a sample. He does, he does credit Rick James. Uh, as rap music goes on, they start, you know, paying the original artists for samples. They've gotten better with that. Uh, like I said, MC Hammer is incredibly popular. Uh, he starts to tour, um, buys a massive house, and he's very popular. If you go over one side, you'll see his massive house. Uh, he gets a cartoon show. Because he's very popular with millennials. Uh, like, his main audience base is, like, people born in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, judging by the cartoon show and the like. So, like, Kids in elementary school and possibly middle school, not necessarily high school and older. Like, MC Hammer is definitely being targeted towards the little kids. I mean, although Hammer is in rap music, uh, his image is squeaky, squeaky, squeaky clean. Like, he's married. Um, He's still married to the same woman. There are no baby mama dramas. Uh, His tour bus has no drugs or alcohol. Super religious. Doesn't really curse in his records. Um, honestly, he, he, the main reason he has his scandal, his only scandal is that he goes broke because he spends way too much money. Uh, you will see, for instance, his house. He buys a giant house, calls it Hammerland. Uh, Hammerland does not last very long. Within a year or two, it gets repoed because he's like in crazy debt to the IRS. Um, mainly whenever people make fun of MC Hammer, they talk about him being broke. That had nothing to do with um, you know his music or anything like that. Uh, he does have a cartoon show for a while, Hammerland. Sorry, Hammerman. Very much marketed towards children. He, he does a rap for like, uh, you know, the Adams Family. The Adams Family. He does a rap for the Adams Family, for the Adams Family movie. Also marketed towards kids. Um, his his next album, Hammer. Please don't. I'm sorry, Hammer. Please don't hurt him. The first album is the it's the first uh, rap album to go diamond which means it's the first rap album to sell 10 million copies. Um, it's also the first rap album to top Billboard's top album since BC Boys' License to Ill. That's in 87. Uh, the BC Boys we talked about last week. License to Ill is their first really big album. Uh, they are rap. They're Def Jam. They have street cred, but they're white. Uh, he releases even more music, things like Too Legit to Quit, um, the Adams Family remix. Uh, later on, he's weirdly on Death Row Records for like a hot minute, actually for a while in the 90s because uh, he's friends with Suge Knight from being from the Bay Area. Uh, that's not when he's popular in the early 90s. Like I said, he does become a punchline in the late 90s. Like By the time you get to like 95, 96, uh, Ipsy Hammer is 100% a, a punchline. He is not a, he's not a, a real force. Um, yeah, he, he's really known for his, 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 um, 
he's not quite a one-hit wonder like this next guy, but he's very much known for his financial troubles. And but his image is squeaky clean, like MC Hammer, squeaky clean image. He does other stuff later on, like later on in the '90s, he becomes a pastor. Um, he even puts out a song. I think it's like in '09 or 2010. It's a Jay Z diss record, which is the weirdest thing you've ever seen, because uh, he claims Jay Z wor- worships the devil and is part of the Illuminati. And it's a weird music video where basically like uh, the a guy dressed in a devil costume is running after a Jay Z impersonator. And MC Hammer's telling him you gotta run. Like, it's a weird thing. But by and large, that's MC Hammer. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, so MC Hammer has pretty good album success. Uh, the guy who has good single success is Vanilla Ice, Rob Van Winkle, who's often decried as being the first white rapper, but as we talked about last week, there are a lot of other white rappers before Vanilla Ice who had tons of credibility. Uh, Rob Van Winkle is originally from Dallas. Uh, and also South Florida. He grows up in like South Florida, like around Miami. Uh, starts rapping early on as well. Uh, he's mainly known for his dancing. Both of these guys are mainly known for their dancing. Um, he is white. He does claim to be from the hood in a sense. Uh, that becomes problematic later on whenever it comes out. He's not from the ghetto. He's actually from a very a middle-class family. He kind of lies about it. It's like, no, 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 well, okay, I'm not from the ghetto, but I knew where the bad stuff was going on, which... I mean, MC Hammer never claimed to be from the hood. Or, you know, Run DMC never claimed to be from the ghetto. Like, it's okay not to be from the ghetto and get rap credibility, but just say you're not from the ghetto. Just say, hey, you know, I grew up middle class or whatever. Uh, His first and biggest single is Ice Ice Baby. Uh, Ice Ice Baby is the song you know, uh, which he wrote slash took lyrics from a guy by the name of uh, Brian Chocolate Johnson. That's going to become important in a second. Uh, it's the first rap song to hit number one on the Billboard Singles chart. Um, it, you know, f- for as much as rap is getting popular and you have a couple rap albums go number one, uh, singles never really cross over until you have Vanilla Ice. Uh, he's fairly well known as a dancer. Like I said, he's mainly known as a dancer. Um, it's a very not great rap. He clearly didn't write it himself. Uh, he becomes a one hit wonder fairly quickly. Uh, there's also some controversy about this because it does sample a song. Uh, it samples the Queen Davy Blow, D- David Bowie, David Bowie song "Under Pressure." Uh, "Under Pressure" is a David Bowie um, Queen collaboration. Uh, it it does not change the beat at all. It does not change the beat like at all at all. Uh, they did not compensate um, David Bowie or. Uh, Queen for basically jacking their beat wholesale. Uh, Vanilla Ice claims it's different because he's like, no, the beat's a little different. It's like, it's doon, 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 not doon, 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 doon. He's like, oh, we, we changed the beat once. Uh, that being said, um, it's not parody because they're not parodying Under Pressure. It's a completely different song. Uh, he claims this eventually does go to court. Um, David Bowie and basically they do get a songwriter credit for the beat. Uh, also, like MC Hammer, he is marketed primarily towards children, as evidenced by his appearance in the Ninja Turtle movie. Uh, I, I included a clip of that. There's a clip of MC uh, Vanilla Ice in the uh, Ninja Turtle movie, and it's uh, it's pretty clear that they're like, you know what, rap is okay for kids. Like, it's fun, it's silly. Uh, you know, the success of Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby does cause a little bit of a kerfuffle with Chocolate Johnson. Sorry, with Mario Chocolate Johnson. Did I call him Brian? That's a different guy. Mario Chocolate Johnson. Uh, Mario Chocolate Johnson was one of Suge Knight's first signees for, like, artist management. Uh, he claims, hey, Vanilla Ice, he tells Suge Knight, hey, Vanilla Ice owes me, like, pay for writing the song. He owes me songwriting royalties. Uh, Suge Knight's, okay, I'm going to take care of that. We're talking about Suge Knight a lot, lot, lot. I wrote about a book about Suge Knight, so I can tell you a lot more about Suge Knight. Uh, basically, Shug Knight threatens, or maybe actually does, hold Vanilla Ice over a um, balcony, a 15-story balcony. And basically, Vanilla Ice, real name Rob Van Winkle, does sign over some of the rights to um, Shug Knight. Shug Knight uses this money to start Death Row Records. So, ironically, Death Row Records, like the king of the gangster act labels, got its venture capital from basically Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby. 
like I said, he is very much a one-hit wonder, but demonstrates that rap music is becoming more ingrained with the younger slash millennial set. Now, as I mentioned, most parents are not too offended by this style of rap. This style of pop rap is not too offensive, and it's getting a lot more acclaim, a lot more intention. Uh, rap itself is getting more acceptance thanks to things like the Grammys. Uh, in 1989, the Grammys do the first um, award for Best Rap Act, Best Rap Performance in 1989, and it's won by a pop rapper, uh, a guy by the name of Will Smith, the Fresh Prince. Uh, you see him with Jazzy Jeff. Uh, it was first given for Parents Just Don't Understand. If you haven't listened to Parents Just Don't Understand, very clean record. Uh, Will Smith's doing the classic, you know, man, my parents don't understand what it's like. Uh, you know, it's hard to be a kid. Parents, parents, you know, they just don't get it. Parents aren't cool. Uh, most parents are okay with their kids listening to music like that. They may have a problem with them listening to, you know, Luther Campbell's Two Live Crew because it's filthy and talks a lot about sex, but, you know, saying parents are lame, that's all right. Uh, Will Smith's time period is nowhere near as popular as like Vanilla Ice and uh, MC Hammer are. I mean, he's definitely well-known. He's not a superstar. Uh, he's about to become a superstar, though, because in 1990, he starts a TV show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, kind of a, a hip-hop TV show where, well, he's he's from West Philadelphia. You know, he spent most of his time on a playground. A couple of, you know, one day they're up some guys up to no good. They start making trouble in his neighborhood. Got one little fight. His mom got scared, said, you need to move to with his aunt and uncle in Bel-Air. Okay, I'm just doing the lyrics. That said, um, well, you know, it, it's showing that hip hop is it's it's very happy, it's very day glow, you know, it's not very threatening. He's a cool guy. He, he's a little bit of a sex symbol. He, he's still kind of young, but you know, Will Smith is a cool, good-looking guy, very clean party rap, and is seen as somebody who's harmless and non-threatening for the kids to watch. And so, as long as hip hop stays like this, it's okay. And so, a lot. A lot of millennial audience, so like people between the ages of like 13 and 6, I'd say middle and elementary school, is the main audience in the early 90s for a lot of this pop rap. And we're going to talk about that later when we get into millennials. Now, when you're talking about what's going on with the rest of the country, when you're talking about what's going on for the rest of the country, I remember the Bush presidency is kind of a weirdly positive time, uh, the George H.W. Bush. Weirdly positive time because, like, you know, the Cold War's over now. America's looking pretty optimistic about the future. Uh, and the millennials are probably the first generation since, like, World War II uh, not to live with looming death over their head. Not to have looming death over their head because, you know, the Soviet Union's gone. You don't have to worry about nuclear war. Um, so it's a very happy time. Uh, it seemed as all the world's problems could be solved. But there was some worry about black folks getting too defiant or worrisome. I mean, we talked about that a little bit when we talked about, like, you know, some of the early stuff of the hip-hop generation. Uh, so, you know, perhaps, like, you know, the wrong sort of attitude could corrupt, you know, the society, could corrupt African-Americans, and it needs to be combated with the right side. Now, what is a bad type? Well, this is really demonstrated, if you go over one slide, with the University of Miami football team in the late 80s, early 90s, in the fallout. Uh, the University of Miami is synonymous with two live crew. In fact, if you looked earlier, like at every picture of the two live crew, uh, pretty much in every picture, they're wearing Miami Hurricane stuff. They're wearing Miami Hurricane stuff. And that's not, it's, it's not because like there's a long history of the University of Miami being a very um, urban ghetto, whatever you want to call it, school. It's really not. Uh, the University of Miami is a private school in Coral Gables, uh, which is a separate community in Miami-Dade County. It's not theoretically part of Miami. It's its own separate city. Uh, it, it, is, it was started like the 1920s. It had its boon. Uh, if you go over one side, you'll see some of the early days of the University of Miami. Uh, Coral Gables is known as like the place where William Jennings Bryan lived. Uh, if you don't know who William Jennings Bryan is, you haven't had a lower-level class with me. Uh, William Jennings Bryan was a very important, like, uh, he ran for president several times. Religious thinker. Uh, it, it was and is, Coral Gables is a very affluent, it's one of the richest areas in all of the country. Very old money, very rich, very, very affluent. And the university is no exception in this time period. The University of Miami it's seen as a very old money school. You know, it started in the 20s. By the time we get into this, you know, the 70s and 80s, it's a very rich area, very old money. 
Uh, the school does have a football team. It's not very good. It's not very good. And, uh, in fact, oh, sorry, you, you, have, you see a picture there uh, of comparing Coral Gables, which is, you know, Coral Gables is where the University of Miami is, and then Liberty City. Liberty City is one of the main um, urban projects within Miami. Uh, that is pretty much where, like, you have a lot of, you know, athletes who come from Liberty City. They're, you know, they're, they're in the Miami Metro. They don't go to the University of Miami. But University of Miami is considered to be too bougie, too highfalutin. They don't want them. But their football team stink. The University of Miami football team stink. Uh, there's an old joke that um, in college, students care most about like you know dating and cute girls or boys. Um, professors and staff mainly care about parking, but the alumni mainly care about football. And the University of Miami had a lot of very wealthy alumni, very affluent alumni, and they want a good football team. They're tired of being shown up by the people they know from like you know University of Florida or Florida State, who they feel. You know, they're, they're not as good, or, you know, they're, they're lower-class people, and they're hearing all this stuff about how great their football team is, and they want the University of Miami to be part of it. But the football team sucked, and there's even talk about taking the football team down to two-way, letting it go down from the uh, the top level of the NCAA, going one down war. Uh, before they hired a coach by the name of Gover One Slide, his name is Howard Schnellenberger. Howard Schnellenberger was a assistant coach for the Miami Dolphins, he had never done college ball before. Never done college ball. He was known for being a pretty good uh, coach at the Miami Dolphins. Uh, he's hired in 1979. He's an assistant coach for the Miami Dolphins. Remember, the Miami Dolphins had won Super Bowls. Uh, they're the only team to go undefeated in the regular season. So it's pretty highfalutin. And basically, he has one big plan. Well, two big plans, but only one that you really want you to know about. I'll, I'll tell you a second plan. His two big plans is, number one, have the university run a pro-style offense. But the other thing is he's going to start recruiting around Miami. He's going to start recruiting in places like Liberty City. He's going to go into the ghettos. He's going to go into the projects of Miami and start recruiting those really, really good football players that the school wouldn't talk to otherwise. Talk to the guys who, you know, aren't getting the attention of the University of Miami because they, you know, they're, they're just viewed as too rough around the edges, too ghetto, too black, whatever. Uh, the people who get recruited by the SEC schools, you know, people who'd be recruited by University of Florida or Florida State or Alabama, Georgia, whatever. He said, hey, look, we're going to bring a culture of winning. Now, there is a little bit of hand-wringing about, like, is this going to change the culture of the school as a whole? Uh, however, winning was deemed more important. He said, I'm going to promise you a national championship in four years. He says, in four years, I'm going to give you a national championship. And true to, this, true to his word, he starts really drawing upon people from places like Liberty City. He starts going into the lower income areas of Miami, going to the quote-unquote bad areas of Miami, and getting athletes who are really, really good, but otherwise may not get a look at the University of Miami because it's too highfalutin, too private. You know, it's in the most affluent part of town, and they're not in the affluent part of town. Uh, a lot of these kids, even though they live in the same metro area, they never gone to Coral Gables before. They're like, I, I didn't know this type of place existed, you know, less than 10 miles away from my house. The team gets better and better, uh, by, and actually true to his word, in 1984, five years afterwards, uh, the team does win a national championship against Nebraska. They win it in the Orange Bowl. Uh, Nebraska is known as like the all-American, white-bred, clean-cut football team. You know, they're the athletes. They're the real scholar athletes. And the Miami guys, they're looked at a bunch of, uh, there's a word I'm not going to say. It begins with T and rhymes with hug. I'm not going to say it, but you don't know the word. They're just viewed as a bunch of delinquents, uh, a, a bunch of just, you know, jerkwads. Uh, for instance, uh, whenever they played Notre Dame, it was called the, the, the cons versus the Catholics, the convicts versus the Catholics. This type of shit right there. Uh, ultimately, Schnellenberger does leave the University of Miami for a pro job. No hard feelings. Uh, he gets replaced by Jimmy Johnson. Yeah, I see right there, Jimmy Johnson. That's who really amps up this kind of University of Miami um, attitude. Uh, the attitude of, of the athletes at the University of Miami under Jimmy Johnson really gets amped up. Uh, by the time of the late 80s, the team gets really known for being like in your face, crass, 
a loud mouth, um, for lack of a better term, like super lower class black, like ghetto, I guess you'd call it. Uh, too black for the rest of the NAACP. NAACP, sorry, NCAA. I don't know if the I don't know if the, I don't know if the NAACP liked it very much either. But the the NCAA, like the college sports people, they didn't care for their antics. Like they were always gotten for like you know excessive celebrations, uh, shtick like that. Uh, think of players like Michael Irving. Uh, you can see Michael Irving right there. I think Michael Irving's number forty-seven. I'm pretty sure that is Michael Irving. Yeah, that's Michael Irving. Uh, Michael Irving was known for like partying and and uh, kind of flaunting the whole amateur thing for uh, college football players. Theoretically speaking, uh, college football players are supposed to be scholar athletes. Uh, they're not supposed to be professional. They're supposed to be amateur. They're not supposed to be paid. Uh, they're supposed to be students. They're supposed to be students first and foremost. And they just happen to do football on the weekends, but that doesn't let them interfere with their studies. Um, in reality, <laughs> it's pretty much an open secret at most of these big schools, like your big, big schools, that during the football season, like, football players don't do a lot of classwork. They don't do too much studying. Um, you know, during the spring semester, they might do a lot more studying. I'm, I'm not disparaging football players, but, like, for a lot of these big-name programs, your SEC schools, you know, your, your big conferences you've heard of, uh, I mean, even Nebraska. I mean, Nebraska's like, oh, our, 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 you know, we're just all-American scholar-athletes. But even at Nebraska, it's an open secret that, you know, they may not go to class all that often or professors are supposed to help them, not, not give them grades, but just be more lenient with, you know, deadlines and stuff. Uh, it's different at Miami because they're kind of flaunting the fact that, like, we're not really going to school. We're just playing football. Likewise, uh, they would go to fancy nightclubs and party. Uh, Miami is well known for its nightlife. Once the team starts getting really good, the nightclubs want them to come. I mean, once again, this is not unusual. Like every college town that has like a, a look. Okay, I'm just speaking for LSU because I, I worked there for a while. I went there for a while too. Um, I don't know anything about Nichols, but I know at LSU, like there are bars around campus that like the football players to go to. And they might be a little lenient with the, you know, I know nobody in college drinks. I know nobody here listening to this has ever had alcohol. But there are some unscrupulous bars out there who, uh, you know, might not ID somebody, particularly a football player, and might want them to come, that sort of thing. And, And Miami, you know, every college town has this. And Baton Rouge, I know plenty of bars that, like, you know, kind of look the other way for football players. Uh, But they're not the big Miami nightclubs. They're not, like... There's a difference between, like, a cruddy college bar. No offense, college bars, if you like a college bar. But, like, there's a difference between, like, a, 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 you know, a little college bar, a, you know, college town bar, and, like, a fancy nightclub that has bottle service. And so this is kind of high profile. You know, you're seeing the athletes, like, go out after games or on the weekends when they don't have games, really flaunting it, like, get being put in. Uh, likewise, their fans are not de- looked upon too favorably. Like, for instance, I will never forget this. I wish I could find a copy of it. But I found a, a dating guidebook in, for the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Like, a guidebook for women about how to find a good man. And one of the things they told you is like, hey, if he wears University of Miami merchandise or says he likes a team and he's not an alumnus, don't date him. It's the idea that just, like, liking the football team. Like, they had, like, a little role-playing thing where it was like, you know, he, he, a, a, a date where it's like you know where it's a woman talking to a guy and he's wearing a University of Miami tie and she's like oh did you graduate from there he's like no I didn't graduate from there but like I just love the football team I love their attitude it's like this is the type of guy you don't want to date this is a bad guy if he likes the University of Miami and how upfront they are and how they you know how crass they are what he's not a guy for you unless he graduated from there and it's this weird kind of double standard like if he graduated from there oh he's probably old money uh, if he just likes the football team, he's a delinquent. Now, what does this whole ha- thing have to do with rap music? Um, plenty. <laughs> plenty to do with rap music because, um, aside from the whole attitude thing, the guy getting the University of Miami football players into the nightclubs is generally Luther Campbell. Um, Uncle Luke, the guy from Two Live Crew, becomes like Miami's biggest unofficial booster. Not only is he bringing underage people into nightclubs, which is problematic and, like, against the rules, against the law, uh, he is also paying University of Miami players for things like big hits and touchdowns. 
Like, it's an open secret amongst the University of Miami football team. Like, hey, if you get a big hit, particularly these Liberty City kids, like, if you get a touchdown, go see Luther Campbell. He'll give you five grand. Or if, you, you know, you get a big hit or a, or a fumble or something, if you, like, lay the smack down on somebody, he'll give you a grand. So that's, that's bad. That's not really part of the rules. Um, you know, the New Orleans Saints got in trouble not too long ago for having a quote-unquote bounty program, and now they're doing it in college, which is, uh, you know, something that uh, seems to go against the, the spirit of athleticism and scholarship that the NAAC, NCAA, not the NAACP, prides itself upon. Uh, to make matters worse, it's pretty clear that the coaches and administration of Miami are aware of this practice. They don't really say or do anything. Uh, they're aware that, you know, they're getting paid, I guess, to keep their hands clean. Because if it goes through the coaches, that's a NCAA violation. But if it's a guy just giving you money, it's a person just giving you a gift. And there's theoretically no rules against There's so many rules against it, it's not even funny. Uh, they do get into a lot of trouble about this, absolutely. And this is kind of seen as the evidence that, like, the destructive nature of rap music or black culture uh, to ruin, quote-unquote, an otherwise solid institution. Remember, before they let the, the urban element in the University of Miami, it was this nice, clean institution, you know, very good, very stodgy, you know, very private school. And then they, quote-unquote, let the riffraff in. They let the riffraff in, and they won a bunch of football games, won several national championships. But, you know, look, it's undermining our institutions. A lot of hand-wringing about that. You know, rap itself isn't bad. Like, no, 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 we don't like rap music inherently. You know, we like Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. That MC Hammercat, he's pretty good. You know, Vanilla Ice, why not? You know, we're marketing that towards small children. But the, the dirty stuff, they're like, no, 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 we don't want people to be doing that. And, and that's kind of where we're going to leave this. I know this is a little bit of a cliffhanger because there's way more stuff coming on because <clears throat> pop rap is starting to become popular. And although there is danger in the, in the less savory elements, it was believed it could be contained. I mean, remember, by the time of your MC Hammers and your uh, Vanilla Ice, uh, Two Life Crew is on the wane. Yes, they're still doing stuff at the University of Miami. Uh, yes, the football team is still having issues. However, some of the issues start coming, coming out. They start having scandals, heads start rolling. Uh, Miami, the football team, still has a lot of uh, scandals here and there. And that's about to be tested in 1992. We're going to end at 1992 because what it looks like another subgenre of rap music, a, a subgenre that came about in this time period, uh, not pop rap, not pornographic rap or the two live dirty rap, but gangster rap, is starting to be viewed as prophetic. But that's something we're going to talk about next time. So what I want you to do is I want you to, you know, listen to the various music. Remember, I don't have any Two Life Crew music videos on here because they are very dirty. You can look them up if you want to. Um, the lyrics are similarly very dirty. You can look them up if you want to. I do have the music video for You Can't Touch This because you may see it's mainly a dance song. Um, and yeah, that's about it. So what I want you to think about is basically think about... Well, censorship, but also you're going to be reading the second chapter of the Hip Hop Wars, where it talks about hip hop reflects a dysfunctional ghetto culture. And that's what you're really talking about here with Two Live Crew. This idea that, you know, it's showing a dysfunctional, dysfunctional culture. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a threat to, to quote unquote good culture. Uh, this type of thing is detrimental to black society as a whole and to American society, and that it's encouraging the bad thing. I think Two Live Crew and its relationship with the University of Miami are very representative of this principle. And so for that, this is Dr. Tully talking to you about Two Live Crew, and I wasn't too dirty. Yay! All right. <laughs>